1: and welcome back to the Rock Chalk Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Mitz. I'm joined tonight, as usual, by my co-host, Steve Fetch, and uh, we have as our, our special guest for the for the week, uh, Jesse Newell. Jesse, how, how are you doing tonight?
0: Doing good. Just getting ready for the craziness that comes. Uh, this is, you know, the busiest time of year, obviously. It's where uh, you kind of uh, say bye to your wife and kiss your kid and say, hey, we'll see you in maybe one week, maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks. We don't know yet, but, uh, yeah, it's where it all gets ramped up and everybody's excited for this time of year.
1: Yeah, I, I always just say I'll I'll see you in early April. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to put it for sure. All right. Uh, yeah, this is definitely the, the the most wonderful time of the year in the sports world. I think um, you know a nice three week period of wonderful, meaningful games, lots of high drama. And lots of storylines for us to talk about. So before we get into all the NCAA tournament talk, though, you know, um, obviously the most recent action for KU has been them running to a Big 12 tournament title. Malik Newman just completely um, dominated in that in that arena there. Um, Silvio D'Souza put in some good minutes with Doke on the bench. Jesse, I, I wanted to ask you specifically, what are your big takeaways from the from the Big 12 tournament for this Kansas team?
0: Well, you know, I think the biggest question going into it was obviously how KU would fare without Udoka, and it was pretty good, you know, it was a lot better than maybe I expected, maybe a lot of the people expected, and, you know, some of this is a positive for KU, obviously, you know, having to get SOSA in there and having him get more game action so that he's more prepared for what might come in the next week when we don't know if is going to be sort of healthy or not healthy or available or not available. I mean, you would assume that Bill Self's going to throw him in there in that first game against Penn and see how he does, but uh, we remember three years back with Perry Ellis, he had that big, bulky brace on his knee. Most More than likely, he's not going to, you know, he well, Perry wasn't 100%, so more than likely, Udoka's not going to be 100%, but to see how, okay, you could play with Silvio in there, and the mention that he gave them, which is rebounding. You know, he, he is the most gifted rebounder, I think, on the team right now, just based off that small sample size, and it. It takes KU's offense especially to a different dimension, just the way he can grab offensive rebounds and crash the glass like he did. And, you know, without – it would be – I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about basically why KU won those three games and won them all by double digits, which is the shot it great. I mean, they ran great offense. They got good shots. And then in a game like West Virginia, they just shot the heck out of it from three-point range. But that's what makes this team dangerous. You know, on any given night, they could make – 16-28 16-28 threes, or 15-27 threes in the case of the West Virginia game. And if that's the case, it doesn't really matter if Duke's in front of them. It doesn't matter if Michigan State's in front of them. It doesn't matter if it's Bill Nova or Virginia or whoever the case may be. Some of those teams might limit threes, but the way that KU has four shooters on the floor, the positive is that on any given night, you can basically shoot your way to a victory no matter how poorly you play in some of the other areas. So we just learned that again from Kansas, that this offense can be and is at times very dangerous and for Jayak fans, I think that really has to be the hope that this continues to click and they continue to get good shots. And when they get good shots, that's the best you can really hope for with this four-guard offense, knowing that guys like Malik Newman, Devontae Graham, Seema Luke, and LaGerald Dick all can, can shoot the ball, especially from range.
1: Yeah, I think there's been some some disagreement or some discussion about that, where, how whether Silvio D'Souza's performance in the Big 12 tournament gives now Bill Stout the option of playing two big men on the floor at the same time um do you do you think it's likely that we find any kind of stretches where we get away from the four guard offense or I mean I, I personally think it might be a little bit too late to try to bring that in especially in tournament play um but you know if if we get a, a healthy dope back and Silvio is still kind of hot, you have to try to find a minute somewhere do we do we try to steal some back from the guard spots to give him some more minutes on the floor?
0: I don't think so, but again it's this time of year where if you get a certain matchup and you need it you do what you have to do. I mean, you've seen Bill Self over the years. Uh, Connor Frank camp a few years ago. I mean, he threw him into two the two biggest games of the season, and Connor was one of their best players in the two biggest games of the season. And he played basically not at all nine games before that. So you can get desperate in a situation, but I don't think you'll see it much because, for one, this is KU's identity, the four guard lineup, and how they played with it. I mean, you don't really change your stripes at this point in the season normally, again, unless the matchup dictates it or something just crazy fluky happens the other thing you look at is as well as silvio played and you know as good as mitch can play in in moments the thing about KU is those guys are two very foul prone players still you know you 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 probably don't want to risk it too much to say okay you put two bigs on the floor at the same time you risk basically double the fouls with your big men and we're still kind of speaking from a point where we don't know how good and how healthy Udoka is going to be. So, again, I'm, I'm not going to say it won't happen. I just think it's really unlikely. It's a little bit, I think, like the talk about Michael Porter Jr. coming back to Missouri because it's one of those things that sounds good in theory. It sounds good when you're talking about it. No, you got to figure out minutes to get Michael Porter Jr. You got to figure out minutes to get Sylvia DeSosa. But it's a little bit tougher because um, this isn't baseball. You know, in baseball, if your four-hitter leaves the lineup and he comes back healthy, well, it's him against the pitcher, and if he hits home runs, then it, the whole team benefits. And basketball is just a little different now. It's like Missouri playing against Georgia, it, it was trying to find itself, and okay, now who? Now who's taking the shots? And and well, I spent the whole season, you know, doing this for the team, and now Michael Porter Jr. is coming back, and he's taking all the shots. You know, what do I do now? And so you saw them kind of struggle against Georgia. And I think for KU, it would be a struggle if the Jayhawks tried to go back to old reliable two big lineup that they really haven't performed well all year, and. When they have tried it, it hasn't worked out that well. And, again, the big assumption there would be be that Udo Gazibuki is healthy and ready to go and ready to come back in and give you 25 to 30 minutes a game. And, frankly, I don't know if that's something you can bank on just because of what he's going to be going through and kind of the pain threshold he has to deal with along with a bulky brace and the physical limitations that are going to come with that. So it's good news for KU that Silvio can play. It's good news for KU that they found another uh, option in the post. But I don't think that means that they're going to change their overall style unless, you know, Worst comes to worst or desperation calls for it in a matchup where a team is just dominating them with two bigs.
1: Yeah. Fetch, your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. I, uh, I suppose we can, we can use this to transition to our first round uh, matchup here against Penn. I was actually watching the, uh, the Ivy league title game. And then I went back and and rewatched their semifinal uh, against uh, Yale as well. And, Uh, Penn does does definitely not have a lot of size so uh, on the one hand I mean I guess you can kind of get away with uh, having one big man but uh, part of me does wonder you know what happens if they do put two big men in there and and just kind of you know overpower Penn because because Penn's big thing and I know Jesse you were harping on this on on Twitter a lot Um, their big thing is is taking away three-point attempts and um, I have kind of my suspicions as far as how well that's going to go against Kansas or not, but we can get into that in a bit, I suppose. But um, part of me, I, I guess, and this is more just kind of thinking out loud is is maybe they go, you know, the exact other way and just kind of uh, overload them uh, with big men and, and just maybe try to to dump it inside as much as possible and see how that goes.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that that's definitely a viable strategy. Interesting thing about Penn um, I actually had taken over the Rock Chalk Talk Twitter during this election show, and one of my first tweets that I had said about that was that, you know, um, when when the, the Penn matchup came across, I had said, now this is just based off of watching the game against Harvard earlier in the day. You know, it looks like KU actually got a pretty good matchup against Penn. Um, you know, and, and once once Fetch took back over, you know, his first tweet was talking about how Penn is probably one of the better 16-season underseeded um, but, you know, I do think if you, if you kind of watch them, you know, there are definitely a lot of ways that we can kind of exploit them. And I think going inside is definitely one of the big ones. So um, Jesse, what are your, what are your thoughts on Penn overall? I mean, do you, do you buy into the hype, the fact that they're extremely underseeded? Um, and how much of a matchup problem do you think there is for Kansas given their, their three point prowess, both on the defensive and on the offensive end?
0: Well, I got to start this with all the caveats because I, I think, you know, people have read my tweets and they kind of think I'm maybe over exaggerating with 10 and how good they can be. And, you know, I guess I'll start with this. You know, obviously my bias is towards the numbers and, and looking at all those things and the predictive measures and how good a team actually is. 10 is 127 in Ken Palm. And so that is the S16 seed in the last six seasons. As you guys know, if by looking at some of the Ken Palms, the Sagarins, BPIs um, of the world, this Kansas team is its a good team, but it has a better resume than it does predictive measures. So, as far as one seeds go historically, this wouldn't be one of the best one seeds, you know, if we look back over time. And so, automatically, you look at that and, and you see the Vegas line, which is what 14 points, I think it is 14 or 14 and a half. And that's a pretty small margin for one versus 16. If I remember right, the KU game at Allen Fieldhouse, and again, I'm cherry picking here, but KU playing Oklahoma State at Allen Fieldhouse, I think KU was a 13 point favorite in that game. So if we want to make a comparison, it's sort of kind of like that. You know what I mean? Like usually 116 is a 30 point dog or a 25 point dog. So this is much closer than that. So when I'm I'm looking at numbers and Ken Palm says that KU has an 89% chance to win and 538 says KU has a 90% chance to win, we're still talking about a 1 in 10 sort of shot here. Now, that doesn't mean that KU will win every single one of those, but it means that 9 out of 10 times, KU is going to come away victorious. And all this talk, everybody's going to look back and say this was overblown. Having said that, um, the things that are dangerous about Penn are some of the things that you guys mentioned. Uh, and, and some of them are just basically that this is an Ivy League school and the team is smart. <laughs> you know, this team plays a smart style, and will know how to play an underdog style. I think what's wrong with 16 seeds so often is that they don't do high-variance things. And by high-variance, what we're talking about is basically shooting threes. I mean, this Penn team doesn't shoot it great from three. I mean, about NCAA average with that. But again, kind of going back to the Oklahoma State example, you saw Oklahoma State didn't shoot well from three until it played Kansas. And then in a one-game sample, some crazy stuff can happen. So for Penn, not only do they limit three as well, which we can talk about, I mean, uh, that's something very important against this Kansas defense. And you guys mentioned that they don't really have much size inside, which if Thomas Robinson was, was walking on the court, I would have a much different response to you about how you might play against them. But as we know, this team, especially without knowing what Udoka is going to be inside, doesn't might, maybe doesn't have a reliable scoring threat inside. You can score with two and say there's two points every single time. And on the other end, like I said, I think Penn is going to shoot 35 threes in this game. I just, I mean, these are smart dudes. They understand that that they're not better than Kansas. They understand what has to happen for a 16 to defeat a one and for them to make history. And that's, they have to make this a very high variance game. They have to make it a game where they're either going to win by one or lose by 40. And they don't care which end of the spectrum it's on. They've got to take their chance to knock off Kansas, the number one seed. So, I think those are the things that worry you if you're Kansas. That this isn't a typical 16 seed. This isn't a team that's going to march in there and try to shoot twos over the top of length and do stupid things. And, and it's also not a team where the variance is between a Ku six point win and a Ku twenty point win. I mean, the, this could be a wide range of outcomes. And so, could Ku win by 40? Absolutely. You know, again, it's basically how you want to divvy up those 35 free point shots from 10. Is Ben going to go five for 35? He wins by 40. Is Penn going to go 15 for 35? This could be close. Is pen going to go 20 from 35, which is possible? Um, then you're looking at trouble. But I think the bottom line is that Penn knows what it is going into this game. It's this a heavy underdog, and many times heavy underdogs don't know that. So um, those are the kind of problems I look at with Penn. But again, having said all that, still remember in the back of your mind 10%, you know, one out of 10 odds. And also, Again, we could be making way too much of Penn because if they go 5 for 35 from 3, K will win by 50, and everybody will be calling me a nerd here on Twitter and over the next few days just saying, what were you thinking to even talk about Penn as a potential threat against Kansas? So it's all going to come down to three-point shots for Penn, and I'm almost going to guarantee you that they're going to shoot a ton of them.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm way more worried about that side of it. Um, than the than the taking away threes uh, from Kansas, just because I, I think, you know, Kansas is going to be able to score uh, pretty much regardless. You know, uh, Penn kind of, you know, as as part of taking away threes, they really hug the perimeter and hug shooters. And uh, their, their big man, uh, A.J. Brodeur, who's really talented offensively, um, but defensively he's just – uh, a little too slow, I think, to where I think Hans is going to be able to just put him in, in pick and roll after pick and roll after pick and roll. And, and even if you're running it with the Sosa or, or even if you're running it with Azabuki, um, I, I just don't think he's going to be able to, to really do anything either getting back and tagging the roll man or, or coming out and hedging off the ball handler. And um, I, I really think Hans is going to put up a, a huge number offensively, um, defensively. You know again it's it's you know who knows what's gonna happen uh like jesse said they're they're basically uh national average from three, but uh over forty minutes you know they could shoot fifty percent uh from three, and if they do take that many uh you know who knows but i, I think you know bill South hopefully, well, you know they really only have two guys who are who are shooting well uh on the season uh, well three but but I guess one of them doesn't really play too much so um it, I think Bill Self's going to, you know, hopefully drill it into their heads that they basically need to stay on these two guys. And, and I guess you'll, you'll live with, you know, guys who shoot 31% from three, taking a bunch of them, um, I guess. Um, but that, that's definitely to me uh, the more worrying side. I just think that KU's athletic advantage uh, on the other end of the floor. Cause again, if it's, you know, if 10 plays out too far, um, you know, even with, uh, like LaGerald Vicks kind of ball handling issues, he's just going to be able to straight line drive past some of these guys. And, you know, Malik Newman's going to be able to, and, and Devontae Graham's going to be able to. So, um, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, a layup line if they try to get up too close. And, and if they don't, I think Kansas has definitely shown at times that they're not shy about shooting, uh, guarded threes and, and they could make them. So, uh, that end of the floor, uh, not worried about. But yeah, the, the defensive end, uh, could, could maybe get a little bit dicey.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely – I mean, I I don't know that, I again, like you guys, I'm not necessarily too worried about um, Penn, especially on the defensive end. I mean, Kansas has so many options. I'm not really too concerned about their ability to score. It's just going to be a matter of, you know, if Penn does get hot from the three, like that's their only road to winning is to make – or to take and make a bunch of three-point shots. So, Um, But I I did kind of want to talk to – because I've heard a lot of people talk about how, you know, how uh, good of a team Penn is to be rated a 16 seed, and I think this goes back to the old committee not really being able to handle these Sunday night or the Sunday late in the day championship games. Um, because Penn and you know Penn and Harvard played fairly late in the day. I think it, they they finished their game probably only about an hour and a half or so before the the uh, brackets came out or, or before the selection show started, and. Harvard being the one seed and you know looking like they probably were going to be the ones to win that, Harvard slots in I think at a 16 seed. They were 18 and 13, um, you know they were rated 145 in Ken Palm, which puts them you know there there would be six teams below them rated in Ken Palm, but a few of them like Lipscomb was 23 and 9. Um, so regardless of you know the fact that they're rated lower in Ken Palm, they they have a better record by quite a bit. Um, Cal State Fullerton has a you know a better record, so I can understand why Harvard would have been spotted in 16. And then when Penn goes ahead and upsets them in the in the championship game, rather than reshuffle all those really high seeds to try to get Penn to some place like a 15 that makes more sense, they just said let's slot you in where Harvard was going to go and run with it there. So I, I mean I think I kind of understand why that happened in a perfect world you would want them to be able to handle this correctly you know and have contingent brackets but for 15s and 16s i don't think they want to go that much into the scenario planning and you know I, I believe that this is the first year that the Ivy League has had a conference tournament um if it's not then it's only the second so normally we already know who the Ivy League representative is going to be a week before um you know unless they have to have like a a play in game because of a tie at the top of the conference so you know this is kind of a unique situation with the Ivy um, I think, you know, if Harvard had been slotted in as as Kansas' number 16, I don't think anybody would have complained at all because Harvard kind of fits that profile for a 16. Penn just got unlucky in that they upset them so late in the day that there really wasn't time to put them in a more appropriate 15 spot.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, that's probably the case. It's just, you know, and I know Ken Palmer always talked about the dangers of using predictive metrics when you see teams and how, you can try to, you know, basically pour it on teams to get that margin of victory up, to move yourself up. And so there are some things out there that would be concerning. I just it's it's difficult for me because it's from seeing these things over time, it's just there's a better way. You know, there's a better way to do these things. And for whatever reason and, and again there's 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 accurate and real reservations to have to use some of these metrics, but it still seems like there can be Some sort of composite ranking or something taking the predictive measures more into account. Obviously, they made into the team sheets this year in some microscopic, like three-point font text up at the top of the team sheet. So at least they had a spot on the page. But you know, for them to uh, for the committee to still rank the uh, the quadrants by RPI, uh, that still can be gamed. It's still something that can be kind of manipulated. And to be frank with you, you know, the Big Twelve was one of the conferences that really benefited from that because if you got a win in the Big 12, it basically had to be a Quadrant 1 or a Quadrant 2 win. And so there were no teams that were bad enough to really not warrant that, maybe other than Iowa State if you were playing them at home. And some of these other conferences, you know, if half the league is good and half the league is bad, you're not getting credit for half your wins, basically, because those wins will drop you into the Quadrant 3. And so you saw teams like, you know, Michigan State not be as highly ranked because of uh, those sorts of measures. So. Again, I I just feel like there's a better way. I I don't know the perfect answer to it. I wish I could give you one so that we could all just jump on board and do it. But I know basically for sure the RPI should have no bearing on what's happening in the tournament committee, and yet it has a very major bearing. The committee seems to to be trying to be moving away from that, which can't happen soon enough. But it feels like the predictive measures at least deserve some spot at the table because instead of just basing it off wins and losses, we know we have better data out there. We know we have better ways of ranking these teams. And so – you know, whether that's looking at these and knowing that hey, three of the fifteen seeds are worse than the sixteen seed that Kansas is playing, I mean that's that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate for KU and it's a bad draw and it's why you see some crazy stuff out there. I mean, I think I saw maybe the New York Times or the Washington Post had someone pick Penn as an upset in that game. Pablo Torre today on uh, on around the horn picked Penn to win that game. So, uh again, these are the sorts of things that probably shouldn't happen to teams that deserve a one seed, but um KU has to deal with it. And again, that's, that's just the reality of it. Now KU's got the bracket and the bracket's in front of him and they've got to go from there.
2: I will say that uh, for, for a team that's had a little bit of, you know, focus issues or, or whatever you'd want to call it, uh, probably having a bunch of people publicly pick a 16th seed is probably the best thing that could happen to them for the first game, I would think.
1: Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I, I definitely agree that this team has had some issues with focus and, you know, we saw when everyone was kind of writing them off in the Big 12 tournament how they responded to that and how how um, Sylvia was able to kind of answer the call when when Doak went down. So having kind of that, that chip on their shoulder again, I think, does them a big favor in these first couple games here before we get to the games where we know they're going to get up. You know, once once we get to the point where we're playing a team like an Auburn or a Clemson, um, that if they get there, you know, they're going to be a, uh, a a trendy pick, honestly, I think. Um, And then having the two monsters in Duke and Michigan State waiting on the other side of the bracket, you know, I I think that this is going to be helpful for for Kansas to at least be motivated. I'm not saying that they're going to necessarily make a huge run and, you know, beat all these teams, but I don't think we're going to be looking back on any of these games and say, man, this Kansas team just looked like it, you know, didn't come to play in this game. We're going to have a very motivated team, I think, in any game that they play in the Big 12 tournament, or I'm sorry, in in the NCAA tournament as well.
0: Yeah, I think so. I wrote about it, too, a little bit. And not that you want to play Duke or Michigan State. I'm sure we'll get to this, talking about this anyway. But, you know, Kansas, with the weight of the Elite Eight that's happened recently, um, I'm I'm kind of with you guys. Like, you don't want to be a three-point underdog or a four-point underdog in your Elite Eight game. That's not ideal. But yet, with kind of the monkey that's been on Bill Self and KU's backs lately, in the Elite Eight, and the pressure you can just sense from watching these games when those guys realize kind of the big barriers in front of them, and I'm thinking, you know, specifically of Oregon last year, but you can go back in time to, you know, pick your Elite Eight game, you know, VCU, and uh, even Villanova to an extent. I mean, that is really difficult to deal with when there's kind of the pressure of a season and the pressure to live up to expectations and everyone knowing that the Final Four is kind of the ultimate reward. If KU plays Duke the pressure's on Duke. You know, if KU plays Michigan State, the pressure's on Michigan State. I mean, those teams are the ones that are getting picked in the Jay Billis brackets and the Dick Vitale brackets. And those are the teams that are trying to to prove that they can finish off their season. And this KU team, if it makes the Elite Eight, I think most fans will be pretty happy at that point. I think this team will will have lived up to expectations if they make the Elite Eight. So, again, it's kind of which way you want to view it. I I agree that if KU got maybe a – I don't know. whatever team you want to talk about there, you'd prefer to be the, the favorite. You'd prefer to be the better team no matter what the matchup is. But outside of that, I think this Kansas team is it's 3 and one this year in games that's been underdogs and like you guys talked about, you know, they lost to Baylor, were down one in the league, people started to doubt them. They won five straight and ran away from the ran away from the league. You know, they lost Udoka, people started to doubt them in the Big Twelve Tournament, they won every game by double digits and basically said I told you so, you know, we're still a good team, that sort of thing. So, uh, again, this, this that could be a good thing for this team. Just I am kind of remembering back to the 2012 KU North Carolina game. That game was sort of a pick em, But, again, if I remember right, KU was the 2C, North Carolina was the 1C, and the pressure was on North Carolina to get through there. And KU played loose, relaxed, free, about the best game it's played in the last six or seven years of, of the tournament. If you look back, honestly, by far the best game they played in the 2012 tournament and, again, a lot of that just seemed like the pressure had been relieved. You know, they had won their close game against Purdue. they grinded the previous game, and they were sort of, you know, if, excuse the term, but playing with house's money. And so when you can play that sort of way, and like you're going out, like Bill Self will say, going out to take something instead of protecting something, uh, you, you, you seem to play much better. And so for this Kansas team, if they can get there, if they can get to that spot and, and be in that big moment, uh, you know, you definitely can't count them out.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think the most recent example of that in the NCAA tournament was that 2012 Kansas team, um, you know, there really was no expectations for that team coming in as a two seed, um, you know, they had a a rough matchup against Purdue in that second round game, and then, um, you know, had a, a, a tough game against North Carolina, but I mean, there wasn't really a lot of expectations on that team, especially when you got to that Elite Eight, and they came out and they played phenomenally um you know Bill Bill self I think we we've said it multiple times Bill, Bill self is a wizard when it comes to motivating his teams um and when he can get them to buy in and they kind of have that chip on their shoulder they perform I think a lot better than most people think that they can so i i'm excited i think this is setting up perfectly for another one of those type of tournaments where everybody for the most part writes Kansas off and they find a way to come come through and actually perform big and and push us to a to a uh, matchups in in San Antonio so it's, right.
0: it's really weird, too. I wanted to mention this. Yeah. I haven't filled out a bracket yet,
1: but, you know, when you fill out
0: a bracket in these parts and you try to win money, you yeah. never pick Kansas. You know what I mean? Because everybody picks Kansas. Right. I right. feel like this is the tournament, if you didn't live in this part of the country, Kansas is like the outsider pick. You know what I mean? Like, Kansas oh, yeah. is the one seed that no one's picking. So, like, if I lived in Florida or Washington or California in a normal bracket, you know, with without – you know, 90% of them being KU fans, I'd probably look at that and pick Kansas because they're the team, again, they don't have to play both Duke and Michigan State, and they're still a pretty good team. If they're not as good as those two teams, if we look at predictive metrics, and they're still considered like 538 still has them the favorite to come out of that bracket. So it's kind of weird because if I look at all the celebrity picks and all the, you know, the the, the picks that everybody's making, I see Duke, Michigan State, Duke, Michigan State, Duke, Michigan State, and uh, again, I, I KU got to that game with built-off history and then those type of games, you know, I'd I'd probably like KU chances better than what Vegas would. And, again, we'll see if that happens. Then I'll have a quick scout and we'll put my money where my mouth is, all those sorts of things. But it is kind of a weird feeling because usually Kansas is the trendy pick. You know, Obama picks them to win it all, all those sorts of things. And it seems like this year Kansas is, like, the trendy one pick to not make it. So uh, that's kind of an unfamiliar role for these Jayhawks. Although familiar, I guess unfamiliar for the Jayhawks period but not unfamiliar for these Jayhawks who kind of have been doubted
1: all season. Yeah. I don't think I've seen one yet that has Kansas other than there was one guy at, at SB nation who picked Kansas to win it all, but he had picked them at the beginning of the season. Um, and then the, the most notable guy so far I've seen that pick Kansas was uh, DJ Khaled on the uh, selection show. He just, when he was, um uh, talking about the, I believe it was the iHeart music awards, like doing the promo for that. He just randomly said, I've got Kansas to win it all. <laughs> so those are really the only two people I've seen that are, that are picking Kansas to even get to the final four. So, um, all right. So let's, let's go ahead and move on. I think, um, we talked about the, the Penn game. Um, it looks like, you know, obviously assuming that they move on from that game, which I think we're all expecting them to, um, they'll either be matched up against Seton hall or NC state, um, which which of those two teams do you think is the most dangerous for KU? Um, and, I mean, it can either be because of matchups or because of ratings. Seton Hall, I just looked on, on Ken Palm. Seton Hall seems to be a bit underseeded as an 8. They're ranked 26th in Ken Palm. NC State is ranked number 41 in Ken Palm, so they appear to be a little bit overseeded as a nine. Um you know, I, I, honestly, I would have thought going into that this uh, going into Selection Sunday that this might have been a matchup, but it probably would have been a seven ten matchup instead of an eight nine matchup. But w- what are your guys' thoughts on potential opponents? Who would you rather see? Who do you think matches up better against Kansas, or or who's the better matchup for for Kansas? Um, what can we expect there, Jesse? We'll go and start with you. Well, I, this time of
0: year, I think you can look at, at two different ways, and uh, for me. You know, you can look at it from just basically a Vegas spread aspect, which is kind of the way you start. So you mentioned it. With Seton Hall and, and NC State, KU fans should be cheering for Seton, or for, for NC State, I'm sorry, because statistically that will give KU a point or two more in the Vegas spread. And that's all really you can ask for is that you're an eight-point favorite or a nine-point favorite in the game instead of a six-point favorite or seven-point favorite. Um, but, again, you can also look at it the second way, which is particular matchups. So, okay, we've all watched – This Kansas team all year, you know, what has caused them problems more than other teams? And we know, like, for example, offensive rebounding, teams that offensive rebound can cause KU some problems. And teams that shut down threes can cause KU some problems, uh, maybe a little bit more. And um, if you're looking at an underdog again, a team that shoots a lot of threes might be one you would look at because a team like Oklahoma State popped up against Kansas, shot a bunch of threes, made a bunch of threes, and, and beat KU even though. Uh, it proved in the final game, and I think over the course of the season, that they were not the better team than Kansas, no matter what Bill Phelps said. So if you're looking at it from a matchup standpoint, NC State is probably a touch scarier for Kansas because if you're looking at some of the things I just talked about, you know, NC State's a good offensive rebound team. NC State's a team, much like Penn, that limits three-pointers, and, uh, but did, does not shoot all lot threes on its own. So um, you can see kind of plus-minus there. The thing about Seton Hall, just kind of good across the board, but not scary in the aspects that... I I just talked about as much, you know, a good offensive rebounding team, so that's one thing against Kansas, but a team that is average at limiting threes, so KU should be able to get offense in the normal way, and then a team that shoots almost no threes on that end. So, again, when I'm talking about high variance, if if KU's a seven-point paper over Seton Hall, that's good for the Jayhawks. I mean, that's okay. probably not as good as some of the other one, eight, or nine matchups, but, again, a lower variance because they don't shoot as many threes, you would expect more of the range of outcomes to be between KU winning by one and winning by 13. You wouldn't expect a bunch of the uh, Seton Hall winning by, you know, two or three or four, that sort of thing. So I think either matchup is okay for Kansas. Um, I think KU fans should cheer for NC State while knowing that that could cause the a few more problems just because uh, of how they limit three pointers. But either way, it's, it's kind of the same thing we're talking about with Penn. I mean, the bottom line is KU's going to have to play. I mean, it's going to be a little bit tougher matchup than you'd expect for 189. 8 9 but uh, I think that KU would prefer NC State and also would have the, uh, the added bonus of KU and uh, Devontae Graham going up against NC State, which I believe he actually worked out in the offseason at NC State's facilities and knows a bunch of their players. So that would be one of the storylines as well.
2: Yeah, I uh I kind of agree with it, you know, being almost a horse apiece to me. Um kind of the worrisome thing about NC State is that, you know, they do limit those attempts, but they were the worst uh two point uh, defensive team in the ACC by quite a bit. Um also they're uh three hundred and forty sixth in the in the nation as far as attempts allowed at the rim. And uh, 297th in terms of uh, field goal percentage, a lot at the rim. So uh, <laughs> get healthy, Doak, speak, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of speaking of layup lines and speaking of Doak, um, one one thing I guess with them is is you know they do have Omer Yurtseven, who's um, seven foot. Um, kind of um, I, I don't know if I would say underperforming, but but people are talking about him as like a potential lottery pick when he came over from Turkey, um, and he's he's certainly been good, maybe not that good, but. Um, one thing with this Kansas team is is it kind of reminds me of the 2015 team where even if your team isn't a very good uh, defensive team at the rim, just kind of having nominal size in there can kind of impact this team um, a little bit. So that kind of has me uh, maybe a little bit worried. Um, the other thing, I guess, if if you want to uh, get really deep into it, is is Al Freeman, who played three years at Baylor, uh, now plays at NC State, and maybe he's got a little bit of the – inside scoop on on what they do um I don't know how much of a difference that makes probably not enough uh to make it matter um whereas Seton Hall I think really the only thing you're worried about with them um is the offensive rebounding and and Angel Delgado who's one of the best and and probably one of the most underrated uh post players in the country where you know if, if Azubuki isn't healthy um he could probably have a pretty big game but um, on the flip side, I think Kansas does a, a pretty good job um, against teams that uh, have kind of one big offensive rebounder. Um, they can usually not shut them down, obviously, but limit them enough to where uh, it doesn't have as big of an impact on the game. So certainly probably um, probably a little bit of a, of a horse apiece, but um, I would actually kind of trend and say that I'd want to play uh, Seton Hall if I uh, had the pick, but I remember in, in 2014, Uh, cheering when Stanford beat New Mexico too. So I I probably wouldn't listen to me on that one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I was looking at it and, and to be honest, I think NC state is probably the better matchup, not just because they're ranked lower, but um, you know, I I actually live in ACC country, so I get to see a lot of the ACC teams uh, whether I want to or not. And NC state, I mean, they have some size inside, but it seems like the size that they have is just a step slow compared to the rest of the, the big men that are in the ACC. And you know, I think I think Doke and, and Lightfoot and, and uh, Souza kind of match up pretty well against that. They're all a little bit quicker than your average big man, and I think that they can take advantage of that on the inside. I think that was kind of the biggest the biggest uh, storyline coming out for DeSosa, or, or the biggest advantage of Souza's kind of emergence in the Big 12 tournament was the fact that he was doing a lot of things similar to what we were expecting from Doke. Um, you know, that, that championship game, he was he was a perfect eight for eight, kind of like Doak was, making a lot of the same sort of um, reads there and getting in and, and finishing a lot of the same way. Um, I do think, though, he's, he's a better defensive rebounder. So even if we don't have Doak, I think um, that DeSouza is going to have a good opportunity to at least approximate what we were getting from him and bring a, a better um, defensive rebounding skill set. Um, which you know was was one thing we've we've kind of discussed in the past. I never really understood why Doke hasn't been as good of a, def- a defensive rebounder as we are used to him. You know, being or thinking that that he could be, but um, in a way, even if we don't have you know Doke back, the really only the concern then becomes the depth. I think because what we've seen recently from Silvio, I think puts us in just as good a position as we were before. He went down before Az- Azubuque went down and, you know, we didn't know what we had in Silvio. So, all right. Any other thoughts about that, uh, that uh, about those potential matchups guys?
0: No, I, I do want to mention one thing uh, on Yudoka. Um, I know people are encouraged on Silvio and they should be, and he provided great energy effort, all those things. Um, from watching courtside and, and being there, he still doesn't know any of the plays basically. Yeah, I mean well, yeah, I, yeah. I'm just I'm just gonna be brutally honest with it. Like he does provide some things that K U hasn't gotten. And in the small sample he has been KU's best rebounder. And I don't want to sell y- Yudoka Udoka too short because I think what Yudoka has been is has been an inconsistent rebounder. I think when he's been pushed and Bill Self reminds him, um, he's been okay. And again, maybe not to his size and maybe not to a level of Landon Lucas who seemed to enjoy that sort of thing. You know, he liked the dirty work. Yudoka doesn't seem to revel in the dirty work. He doesn't seem to revel in getting defensive rebounds. You know what I mean? But if you look at the numbers, I mean, he's still 75th nationally in offensive rebounding percentage, 220th in defensive rebounding percentage. So, I mean, we're not talking about a total bum here. We're just talking about a guy that seems like physically he should be much better than he is because he doesn't always seem motivated to get that. But I think it's an interesting thing for Bill Self because um, Mitch Lightfoot, you know, he's a four trying to play the five. And he's good on the offensive glass but doesn't really have the lower center of gravity to keep guys off the defensive glass. So he's he's a little bit limited physically in what he can do. But Again, he knows the play calls, and he knows what he's doing out there, and he's the better guy with the scouting report. And Bill Self is pushing him. He's pushing him, pushing him, pushing him, trying to get the most out of him. But, again, when Bill Self calls a sideline out bounce play for him, he sets the right screen, and then he gets a lob and he dunks it. Or he sets the right screen and Malik Newman gets open. And so there are some kind of mechanics behind the KU offense that work better when Mitch Lightfoot is in there. And for Silvio, I think it's just a little bit scary for Self because he's a guy that loves – Bill Self is a guy that loves to have control. And part of the reason for KU's offensive success over the years is that he's a great offensive coordinator. He sees a a defense play a certain way or a player do a certain thing, and he makes the play call from the sideline. KU executes and gets a dunk. Well, this team is just not quite like that, you know what I mean? Especially right now with Silvio that – they get more of their points off of, oh, I just kind of showed up open for a three, and I'm going to shoot it before the guy, my defender, gets out to me. You know what I mean? That's how KU scores better right now, and obviously in transition, then, okay, here, we're going to run two-side or whatever, and it's going to be pass, 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 throw over the top, execute, get a dunk for, for whoever's in there. So in Udoka's defense, he had a horrible game when execution-wise when it came to the last game, regular season game. I wrote about that against Oklahoma State. He just basically – had a brain fart the entire game and couldn't run any plays. He's still way better off than Silvio because he still knows way more plays than Silvio. So I think the danger of expecting too much from Silvio right now is just the fact that all those things he did were great and they look great and they're great to kind of the, the naked eye and the casual fan. But some of that behind the scenes stuff, when when KU's up two with two minutes left and they need to execute a play to get a basket, Bill Self is going to be pulling his hair out if Silvio is in the game because – he doesn't know what Claw is going to get run. He doesn't know where Silvio is going to go on the court. Heck, Silvio doesn't know where he's going to go on the court. So, um, Bill Self's play sheet goes from, like, the, the uh, you know, the the Nick Saban or the Bill Belichick or whoever, the Todd Haley play sheet, you see the laminated ones. It kind of shrinks from that to, like, a, a business card when Silvio's is on the court. So, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, again, Silvio played great at the Big 12 tournament, deserved all the, the praise that he got. It's still... There was no game in crunch time. There was no down to the wire minute where Bill Self needed to execute a play to get a win. And so that's still I think is a concern moving forward and it wouldn't surprise me if those in those crucial moments where Bill Self might still trust Mitch Lightfoot more because he knows at least when he calls a play, Mitch Lightfoot's gonna execute it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I mean I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, we'll be absolutely just fine. There won't be any kind of hit if toked out. Um I do think though that now we're in a much better position to compensate for him not being at full strength or him not being Yeah, there. Oh yeah I agree with that. Um yeah. you know yeah, I mean, and, and 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 I don't think honestly at this point like we're going to get to the you know if if we end up losing in a late game situation I I I'm just not convinced that we're going to say oh man if we had Doak, that game you know that would be completely different like maybe that one specific play towards the end of the game would be different because Doke could do something a little bit differently, but it's not like we're going to say, oh well, if you know, if Silvio wasn't playing, you know, 18 minutes and instead only played 10, and and Doke was in there, then the game would have been completely different and we would have won. Like I, I think over the course, the, the run of the entire game, it's going to be fairly close if we have to run with Silvio. Certain specific instances, right, where where you know Doke can will know what's going on a lot better. Yes, that that could potentially be an issue, but you know that also doesn't really take into account kind of the, the, I guess, coaching that Yudoka was doing during the big 12 tournament. There were, there was a couple of times where it was obvious that, you know, Doke was telling Silvio where he needed to be, you know, kind of giving him that, that little, those those little tips to help him get through that, that sort of thing. So I, I do think that that would continue and that would be something that could help mitigate that as well.
2: So. So um, I, I know we got to get out of here quick, but I, I'll just want to, to piggyback off one thing that Jesse said that caught my ear where he said, you know, there, there was no uh, close game uh, in the big 12 tournament to kind of, you know, see which, um, you know, which big man self would go with, but uh, you know, and I love Mitch, but what is part of the reason there was no close game in the big 12 tournament was because Silvio was getting, you know, the majority of those minutes versus Mitch Lightfoot. Um, I mean, I just think that that's something that I don't know. I mean, I, I, I like Mitch. Like I said, I think he can do some things in spurts. Um, obviously, he's a really good rim protector when he helps, but um, I just think that, you know, for those first two games, especially, uh, you know, Penn has a guy who can score inside. Uh, obviously, Seton Hall has a guy who can score inside. Um, I, I just think that too often it's like two free points uh, when Mitch Lightfoot's going one on one against a post defender. And, and against Penn, you can't really dig in to help. Maybe you can against Seton Hall a little bit more, but. Um, I I would just, I I think, um, and and I get what you're saying about, you know, Silvio not knowing the playbook and and it's, you know, if I can see that he doesn't know the playbook, I think it's pretty easy for, you know, someone like Bill Self to see that he doesn't know the playbook. So I I certainly get where you're coming from on there. I just think that, you know, overall he kind of offers a little bit more with Mitch, um, even from like an offensive rebounding standpoint or, or, you know, going up and, and, uh, you know, dunking the ball and, and defensively, I think overall he's, he's a little bit better as well against, um, certain opponents. So, um, like you were saying, I, I don't think that it's a thing where you just go, oh, you know, Silvio's the next doke. We can just plug him in and, and be fine. Um, but, but I do think, and, and I guess I could be, you know, it, it was only like 50 minutes of playing time or whatever, but, um, I do think he took a, a big step forward to the point where, um, we can now, you know, play him, you know, 25 minutes probably in a, in a tournament game and and not be worried about it, which uh, for me is, is a pretty big step. And, and uh, again, you know, I, I I do love Mitch, um, but it it just makes me feel a little bit better knowing that we could have, you know, the Sosa taking a majority of those backup minutes and letting Lightfoot play in kind of four or five minute bursts at a time.
1: Yeah, definitely. All right. So before we get out of here, I just want to, um, you know, Let's just kind of run real quick through the, the rest of the regional, not really in a sense of like looking at any particular games, but I want your guys' thoughts. Obviously, Duke and Michigan State are kind of the two big names kind of jumping out there. Um, which of those two do you think is the worst matchup for KU? Um, which are we most likely to see in the Elite Eight, assuming that we get there? And is there any other team in the bracket that kind of jumps out at you guys that as a, a team that Kansas should particularly worry about?
2: I'm I'm letting Jesse handle the Duke Michigan State thing because I've gone back and forth fifty times. Yeah, which
1: is why I I really
2: can't. I mean, Uh, Duke gives up a lot of threes, which is the only thing I can think of. Um, But uh, other than that, I really have no idea.
0: Yeah, I I think there's basically no winners in this one because if you're KU, because um, I think Duke's the better team, and I think if Duke doesn't make it, that that's really not any relief for Kansas. You know, because uh, Michigan State's one of the most talented teams as well, and you know, as I mentioned before, grossly underseated as a as a three. So uh, I heard Brian Haney talk uh, a couple weeks ago on Saran Petro's show, and I thought he made an interesting point, too, and one that probably Bill Self will make if KU does face Duke, which is Bill Self has always talked about the favorite teams that he's had that have veteran leadership from seniors, but the best players are freshmen. And I don't think we anticipated that from Duke going into the season, but I think it's turned out that way. You know, you got the Grayson Allens of the world as your seniors, but yeah, you got Marvin Bagley as a freshman and super talent. So you kind of got the great mix of both of those and, and all combined kind of looking back like the 08 KU uh, team that won it all. So uh, yeah, I, again, I, I think you could flip a coin heads or tails. I mean, from the, from the advanced metrics that I look at, the predictive ones, they would give Duke the edge just by a sliver, but uh, it wouldn't surprise any of us if either one of those teams by that elite eight game would be playing better than any other team in the tournament. So uh, KU has no favors in the Elite Eight, but obviously still a long road to get to, to get to the Elite Eight. And other than that, you know, it, it's hard to say because people can go back to this podcast in two weeks and say, oh, what an idiot. You know, we didn't say anything about Clemson, and Clemson ended up beating Kansas. And, again, all this is sort of like probabilities, you know what I mean? You are looking at these numbers and you're saying, okay, well, is this a, a decent matchup comparatively or not? And honestly, I mean, I think Penn is scary for Kansas, but I think Kansas will win. I think that Seton Hall is – Potentially a tougher matchup, but again, I like KU in that game. And then I think the four-five part of it is uh, the, the nicest part of the draw that KU got. I think you know Auburn is reeling, lost four last six, and Clemson is a team that's pretty fairly seated as a five. I don't think they were underseeded. So again, K might only be like a three or a point three or four point favorite in that game, but I would probably like Kansas in that game. So uh, no, nobody really jumped out to me as like, oh my gosh, that, that KU could run into that team, other than again just. Penn having the type of style to me where they're just going to chuck up a bunch of threes and, and that will be to their detriment. If you have to put up 35 threes and you have to take some bad ones and some bad ones are not likely to go in, but you know, I thought of that, I mean, KU could lose to any of these teams, like I mentioned, but I don't see a particularly scary matchup or a particularly underseeded team, at least until KU
2: gets to the Elite Eight. You know, one, one team on the other side of the bracket, I, I haven't been able to quit them all year and I'm going to say it again. Uh, TCU. TCU's <laughs> offense is, and obviously there's no Jalen Fisher, uh, but their offense is still really good. Um, if if they can you know get hot from three, uh, if Alex Robinson uh, maybe shoots a little bit less than him, than he has been Stop. and then he he's should
0: shooting Alex Stop exactly.
2: Him. Yeah, oh. if if he's you know the thing is too is he's he's a good passer. Obviously he doesn't take care of the ball very well, but you know he's a he's a good passer. Uh, TCU has good shooters uh I don't know i mean i i maybe maybe could be talked into them beating michigan state if if things break right, but that's just I've overrated t c u all year so that's probably just me,
1: yeah, a couple notes that i that I had was um first of all, there's the possibility that Kansas could after beating Penn beat three a c c teams on the way to the final four um beating n c state, then beating Clemson and then beating duke which which would be i think the the ultimate kind of Vindication for the Big Twelve over the ACC um, if they were able to do that. Um, but honestly, you know, I I don't know that we have to really worry about any of those four or fives. I think a team like the Mexico State is set up to be able to go on a run and kind of shock a few people and get to the Sweet Sixteen. Um, the only other thing I actually I've heard a lot of people talking about a potential Duke Oklahoma game um, as you know like the best game of the first weekend. I think that TCU Michigan State game potentially has an opportunity to be a a much a much more compelling game i think so um all right so i think that kind of covers it for the midwest region before we get out of here were there any other matchups or any other kind of like dark dark horse teams in any of the other regions that you guys just felt you have to talk about
0: not not really for me i mean the the team i'm gonna love is gonzaga obviously if you're looking at predictive metrics i mean i kind of loved them all year and everybody seemed you know they always seem to be a little underseated based on the strength of schedule but they got put in with the one seed in Xavier, which is um, not even as good as Kansas when it comes to one seeds and that sort of thing. Right. So uh, looking forward to, you know, Gonzaga, North Carolina in the Elite Eight. That would be a great matchup. that would be fun to watch. But outside of that, no, I mean, I, I think I, I like Virginia. I like Villanova. I haven't filled out a bracket, but uh, I like those two making the final four. And then I think the other two regions are kind of the wild cards there.
2: Yeah, I think uh this is gonna be, you know, after after trying to dig deep the whole podcast, this one's gonna be pretty obvious that I think that, that quadrant with uh Arizona, Kentucky and then uh Virginia is probably uh the one to watch. Um as far as uh, you know, kind of the most exciting games. I mean that Kentucky Arizona game's probably gonna be well, watch it not happen now, I guess, but um, that's probably yeah, and that's,
0: be, and that's the only thing I want to say with it is that everybody, you know, it happens every year. We always forget about it, but like the recency bias that creeps in because Arizona's on this huge run through the big Pac-12 tournament, Kentucky's on this huge run through the SEC tournament, and so everyone's like, "Oh my God, these teams are playing so well," and then inevitably always one of these teams loses in the first round. We think, why do we we weigh the conference tournament so much? Why do we do this every single year? So, again, I'm not predicting that. I'm not saying it's absolutely going to happen. But it seems like every year we always talk ourselves into these teams that play well late, and then it's like, oh, wait, there was a whole season's worth of data that showed that Kentucky wasn't the top 25 team. There was a whole season's worth of data where Arizona was only beating teams by two or three points when they had – you know, one of the top players in the nation. So again, we'll see how they fare. It could be different, but uh, it would be a fun, fun matchup if it happens. I'm just, I'm kind of with you. I think that it might not happen just because of all those things. I just mentioned.
1: Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, I'm not expecting it to happen. I see. And and I think this is going to be a real big hot take that I'm about to throw out here. I see two teams is very, very similar. The only difference being the conferences they were in that led to their results. You know, they both have a huge superstar player. Um, but their, their teams haven't necessarily kind of been able to, to get the results that we were expecting, um, that being Oklahoma with Trey Young and then Arizona with DeAndre Ayton. I think, honestly, the only difference for me between those two teams is the fact that Arizona plays in a very weak Pac-12, and so they've been able to pile up the wins against an extremely weak conference, um, You know, whereas Oklahoma's playing in what I think everybody considers to be the best conference in the nation, and so they haven't been able to pull out the victories that Arizona has. I think if, if they were to switch, like Arizona potentially in the Big 12, I think would have had a lot of problems similar to Oklahoma. It may not have been as bad, but I, I kind of see those two teams as fairly similar with a very, very big star that can take over a game. And that's probably enough to to allow them to make a run if he is playing just absolutely phenomenal and the rest of the team kind of coalesces around him. But, you know, just like Oklahoma, I, I see that they have, the potential to flame out really early. I do think that they're going to either lose um either well, I think it's more likely that they lose the buffalo than than Kentucky loses the Davidson. But everybody is picking Davidson as as a, you know, that kind of that underdog um flying under the radar, which isn't going to be under the radar anymore because I've seen so many people actually pick it of of Davidson ups, upsetting Kentucky. But Arizona I think is kind of my my surprise, you know, throw it out there as the team that's going to lose in the first round that's going to shock everybody. All right, so with that fire being thrown, <laughs> and anyone have <laughs> have any final thoughts before we wrap up for the night? I don't think I have any. Um,
0: Oklahoma couldn't ask for a better matchup first round Rhode Island. Oh, yeah, it's definitely. Really slipping and has been overrated all year. Um, those fans have been throwing me hot fire all year when I refused to rank their team, and uh, I think we saw down the stretch why you don't trust those teams that win by two points in away games against uh, bad teams and bad conferences because, again, yeah. we know better. We have better metrics out there. So um, that's a great matchup for them. I think I saw them as a one-point favorite. So it wouldn't surprise me if they won. And then, you know, then you then you get Duke. So good luck, uh, good luck, Oklahoma. But yeah, uh, I definitely could see the as Sooners as at least getting one win there. Yep.
1: Yeah, yep. Yeah, definitely.
0: Just one
2: one quick one for me, I guess, and then we'll get out of here, is I think Villanova uh, got about as easy of a road as you could ask for. Uh, To be honest with you, I don't think either West Virginia or Wichita State, uh, or if there's any upsets, I don't think any team in in their half of the bracket is going to be able to to give them any troubles. And then, you know, I think they match up pretty well with Purdue. And then uh, Texas Tech is the team that ends up making it. You know, Keenan Evans is such a big part of that team that, you know, if he's not healthy, I I don't really – know how far they can go, which is kind of unfair, obviously, because they've had uh, such a great year, but um, just don't don't really see them making much of a run uh, without 100% Keenan Evans.
1: Yeah, Keenan Evans is one of those guys that, he'll you know, his health, I think, determines whether they can upset Villanova to make it to the Final Four or if they lose, you know, even potentially first round against Stephen F. Austin. This Stephen F. Austin team isn't the same kind of team that we've seen recently, but they are still a good team and have the potential. Um, but whoever wins that Texas Tech Stephen F Austin game, I think gets to the Sweet 16. Um, I'm not scared of Florida or St Bonaventure or UCLA coming out of the other side. So, all right, before we uh, go down the rabbit hole again and start picking random games, let's uh, go ahead and get out of here at this point. I know everyone else has, has other things to do, and and we've kind of broken down what I think matters most to the to the Ku fans out there. So, Jesse, I I want to thank you for joining us. I know it's a, a crazy time of year for you. Um, but thank, thank you for taking the time to kind of break this down with us. Fetch, again, thank you for joining me again this week. Um, we, for the, for those of you guys listening, you can catch us on Twitter at Rock Chalk Talk. You can email us, SBN, I'm sorry, it's rctsbn at gmail.com. Um, you, know, you can contact any of us individually on Twitter. Um, uh, but you know, uh, definitely find us on iTunes, rate uh, rate us, subscribe, all of that fun stuff you guys know the deal there, so it, it really does help to kind of get us out there so more people can get connected with the podcast and if you do have any suggestions, any questions make sure that you let us know we do like to answer your questions, it definitely makes a, a lot, a, a lot more fun if we can interact with the listeners, so um, definitely send those along but uh, with that in mind, we will go ahead and get out of here now, and I want to thank you guys for listening, and we will catch you next time on the Rock Chalk Talk podcast
0: Podcast Network.